Thanks for tuning in to Body Count, the podcast for theblackesteyes.com. My name is Philip. On the line with me is Scott and Danny. And today we're going to try to have intelligent conversation on horror movies. Certainly glad that you have joined us today for The Blackest Eyes. And we love hearing from you guys. Uh, We'd love to receive emails, maybe comments, and just let us know what you're thinking about the podcast, about the movies that we're reviewing, and really do love that community, especially during this time. We're currently in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis. Everybody is quarantined at home. Uh, So any kind of community that we can muster up, we would love that. So please respond to us and let us know how you're doing. Guys, Scott, Danny, how are you all doing? Welcome back to the program. Oh, I'm doing fine. How do you feel? Um, obviously, uh, it's a weird time for all of us. So, uh, horror movies are a great place to go for escape. Yeah, we're doing good over here. I'm out in California. You guys are in uh, Kentucky, but we're doing great as far as we can be, given the very odd situation that we're all having to deal with. But um, I'm I'm really glad that we're <laughs> at least we're able now the three of us to do this podcast. It's always hard to schedule our our time together, but you know, there's not a whole lot else going on. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting, Scott. I, that's true. There's not, but I don't know about you guys. I've been in some ways busier than I've ever been. The last two weeks for me have been absolutely slammed. I, I thought I had all these books. Finally, I'm going to be able to catch up on these books. I wanted to get back into my Greek. I was excited about that. I have these all my Greek textbooks ready because I want to teach my, my boy Greek. I'm going to start him in Greek this year. And no, haven't been able to do any of that because I've been swamped. Has that been true for you guys as well or no? It's absolutely true for me. Uh, I teach and... Uh, all of my classes were converted to remote or online learning. And since, you know, they've been planned as in-person classes, that means recreating a ton of work that, uh, or, you know, actually recording videos or topping up a ton of work that would have just come straight from my head in the lecture situation. I might've had a page of notes and they've got to become, you know, an hour and a half worth of a video presentation so yeah it's been a ton of work and i've got no extra things done uh, watching movies for this uh, podcast has been really the only uh, entertainment i've been getting mm-hmm. yeah same here I, you know i i'd have to say that my busyness is a little less um i don't have to commute um you know yes i had to put all my coursework into an online format too but i teach uh, synchronously, which means that this, you know I just lecture right to the screen, and my students are logged in wherever they are at the same time, and so it, it's weird, but it's I don't have to do any special pre- uh, preparations, or you know I'm not recording videos of myself or anything like that. Um, I seem to have fewer meetings, but you know uh, it's interesting because uh, Philip, my pastor, said the same thing. He said that he you know he's doing a lot more. Um, you know, trying to live stream things and trying to provide pastoral care remotely. And, and, um, yeah, he said that his, his busyness level has in some ways just sort of increased. It's different and maybe it's fewer evenings, but he's, he's busier now than he was before. 
Well, that's my experience. My church size is 250, 300 people. We have a three full-time pastoral staff, but we don't have a pastor for media or a pastor for technology. So all of the content that we're trying to create to stay connected, uh, not only are we creating that, but I'm kind of the one who's also doing all of the editing, all of the encoding, all of the uploading, all of the website design, that in and of itself, as I, you guys probably know, it takes forever just to do those things. Mm-hmm. And that's not even including still making contact, calling church members, trying to get even to people's homes, standing in the front yard, making sure that the live stream is ready to go for Sunday. You know, this is Holy Week and yeah. there's just a million things happening. And uh, it's been really intense uh, for me personally. Uh, so uh, what Danny said has been true for me. It was nice to have uh, 90 minutes uh, today to watch this film and just kind of get away for a little while. It was very, very good. Having said that, you know, uh, I am going outside a lot with the kids. We're playing uh driveway tennis with my youngest he's starting to get into tennis which is really exciting to me i played tennis my whole life uh it's been beautiful uh we have had some gorgeous days here and so those have been some nice things as well well we're here to talk about horror movies right so uh we better do that let's jump into the first segment which just so happens to be our only segment which is creature feature Today we're going to review a 2019 film called The Lighthouse. Uh, This is a horror film directed by Robert Eggers, who was also the director for The Witch, a movie that we have reviewed and podcasted on The Blackest Eyes as well. Uh, We went into this not knowing much about it. We just said, hey, let's watch it. None of us had seen it before uh, this review. So sometimes when we do movies, guys, one of us has seen it and we say, hey, this is a great movie. Let's watch it and review it. So we sometimes have going in knowing, hey, this is going to be good. We didn't know anything about this movie except it had uh, received very, very good reviews, critically acclaimed. Yeah, so we all watched it today, and we are going to review that. Scott, I think last time you did the the plot synopsis. I'll, this time I'll go for it. Danny, next time you be prepared to do the summary for, for our next movie. So here's the, uh, here's the basic outline for The Lighthouse. Obviously, again, there's spoilers here. A guy named Ephraim Winslow is a lighthouse keeper. And he arrives at this remote island, and he's going to begin a new job. This is a new job for him. And these guys are called wikis, apparently. I did not know that until I watched this film, so that was a new bit of information for me. And when he gets to the island, he's going to be working with a gentleman who's been stationed there a very, very long time. The guy's name is Thomas Wake. So you've got Ephraim, the new guy, arriving to the island with Thomas Wake, who's been there a long time. Wake is Ephraim's supervisor, obviously, his, his boss. And we learn pretty quickly that Wake is going to be a difficult boss. Uh, He's barking orders. He's making Ephraim do the more difficult tasks during the day. And at night, Wake goes to the top of the lighthouse where the light actually is and hangs out there. Now, apparently, there's a manual of operations for this thing, which you never really see, but it's referenced a couple of times. And it says that they should be taking turns, like a rotation as to who goes up to the top of the lighthouse at night and is making sure everything's going well with the light. But Wake refuses that and has very strong reactions when Ephraim wants to know more about the actual light. Seems like he's very protective of the light. You're, you're not going up there. She's mine, is what uh, Wake will say from time to time. Uh, soon after Ephraim arrived, he found a, a mermaid that was carved out of 
some kind of material, ivory or stone or something. And uh, he keeps the mermaid near him throughout the film. Uh, how shall I say it? He, he uses it in a variety of ways uh, to keep him company. And at one point, Ephraim is annoyed by this seagull that uh, that is in his way, but he is strictly forbidden by Wake to kill it. And uh, Wake is very superstitious and says, well, the souls of dead sailors live in seagulls, so you can't kill it because bad things will happen. But Ephraim doesn't listen to that warning, and he ends up killing the seagull. And when he does, the whole movie changes. Like the wind changes, it, it becomes even more uh, a, a darker situation. Things start spiraling out of control. Uh, Ephraim, who at this point had uh, resisted alcohol, he starts drinking. Now they're both drunk most of the film. And at one very important moment, you may not have known it. Well, you probably would because it was a pretty intense scene. Uh, Wake throws down this massive curse <laughs> on Ephraim, basically because Ephraim wouldn't tell Wake that his cooking was good, uh, which was in some ways very funny, but it was very dark at the same time. Uh, then things just go nuts. Ephraim experiences live mermaids out in the sea. We've got sea monsters. We have kind of Lovecraftian kinds of creatures hanging all around, tentacles. The bickering with Wake continues to increase. Uh, but then we learn that Ephraim's real name is not Ephraim. It's actually Thomas. And Thomas Howard has a dark past. He watched a co-worker of his die. And apparently he just didn't have any real emotion. He lit a cigarette and just watched the guy die. And because of that, he was relieved from his post. And that's why he was trying to find work. After he kind of confesses this, Wake chides Howard for spilling the beans. <laughs> he says that a few times. Oh, you shouldn't have spilled the beans. And that leads to the climax of the film where Howard kills Wake with an axe, finally gets to see the beloved light, but when he does, it overpowers him in some way. He falls down the lighthouse steps, and the final scene is Howard being eaten by seagulls, which is exactly what the curse that Wake had put on him earlier said would happen. So, as you can tell, a, a very uplifting movie. Um, uh, and, I, and we should say right from the beginning, it was filmed in black and white. It was filmed in an aspect ratio that I had definitely never seen. It was almost like a, a perfect square, wasn't it? I mean, it was like very, very tight uh, and, and compressed in there. So, yeah, that's The Lighthouse. So, just general ideas, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. Like the movie, didn't like the movie. What do you think? Scott, we'll start with you, buddy. What what do you think? Well, I have a compl complicated sort of relationship with this movie. I I can appreciate it. I won't I won't say I liked it. I, I but I um I appreciate the artistry of it. It's not sort of my type of film. There were a couple times I wondered if I was watching some David Lynch thing. It was kind of you couldn't tell what was real or, or, you know, was, is this a dream or hallucination? Are they intoxicated? It, um, I mean, I could follow the plot and it's, it, it's not a complicated plot. It, it's really a mood piece. Um, so I, I appreciate the artistry of it. It's brilliantly uh, photographed. The actors are amazing and it's got great sound design. I mean, all the, all those technical things are superb and superior, but entertainment-wise, I I kind of struggled with it. I, I wasn't my favorite movie. Yeah, Danny, what about you? Uh, yeah, I'll echo what Scott was saying. It, I, the artistry is actually amazing, and you know, as 
as a guy who teaches film, that is something I've always got my eye on, uh, uh, even with horror movies that I'm just watching for enjoyment. The cinematography is amazing here. Uh, the, the cinematographer was wonderful in The Witch, and his work here is just so interesting. You mentioned the aspect ratio. I believe it was 1.16 to 1, almost a perfect square. Yep. That's you know that's even you know more extreme than the old four three classical Hollywood, and it had such an amazing effect on how you read the movie, because I don't know about you guys, I watched it on uh, on Blu-ray, so I had these black lines on the side, which made every frame seem so claustrophobic, and I think it just ratcheted up the tension. And I believe in if you even if you saw it in a theater because we're so used to reading screens on a wide screen, I think it would have still read as, as if all those even open frames were closed. Like you were just being, you know, the characters were being squeezed in from the outside. And I thought that lent a real just nervousness and, and I don't know, grittiness to every scene. Um, but that being said, I, I, I couldn't, relate to any of the characters i couldn't relate to what was happening um if i was reading it like a lovecraftian cosmic horror i was enjoying it but then when it got into its character pieces it just it wasn't working for me um, and back to the artistry real quickly the acting is also phenomenal and phenomenal from both leads amazing work so technically wonderful and then maybe you know on a personal level just sort of okay well, I don't know how this happened, but it seems like we all had the same reaction to the film. That's exactly where I am. Uh, I finished it appreciating the movie. I'm glad I watched it. Uh, the performances themselves for me were worth the price of admission. Uh, both these guys uh, truly, uh, they make you descend into their madness and uh, very, very compelling. Um, beautiful imagery, powerful emotions. You know, all of those things, it, all of those elements should add up to a great movie, right? I mean, we everything I'm saying about it, what more do I want? And yet something's lacking for me. I, I wouldn't recommend the film necessarily to somebody, uh, but I'm glad that I watched it. Now, you mentioned, uh, Danny, that you watched this on Blu-ray. You Did you already have the film on Blu-ray? Or did you order it? Or how did you get it on Blu-ray? Uh I don't know. I picked it up. I teach a horror class, and I picked it up at some point, and never pulled the the wrap off of it. Uh, I had not watched it until uh, until today. But uh, I, that's incredible that you just had the lighthouse on Blu-ray sitting in your house. I'm in awe of you. Well, that's amazing. It, well, it's actually sitting in my office, to be fair. But like, I've taught the horror class two semesters in a row, and I just kind of buy everything that gets some critical acclaim. And, case there's a scene i want to show in the class gosh uh, i'm assuming a, you streamed it from amazon right scott that's like right <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, actually, uh, I, I actually just sat here and watched the last 30 minutes uh, before the podcast uh, on amazon so uh, well when i i don't know if either of you did this but i was watching it just on my portable device and when it started you when it first started you couldn't tell that it was that aspect ratio it just looked like normal widescreen and then when you when the first scene came up of the sea where it was that kind of grayish that's when you could see it was the square and i thought my phone had screwed up so i was <laughs> yeah. like i was like doing oh no it's auto adjust or something what did i do i was trying to figure out what went wrong it didn't it took me a minute i fast forwarded it you know to make sure it wasn't just 
like, oh no, the whole movie is this way. <laughs> that's how that's how much it shocked me in terms of the aspect ratio. Yeah, I had never expectation that this was just the past, and then when we got to the present, the screen would widen. Yeah, uh, but then of course that doesn't happen, and it's not just the uh, the aspect ratio. They also shot on uh, a variety of old cameras, uh, which gives it a, a very unique look and, and must have been incredibly difficult to light. I can't wait to dig around and find, I'm sure the cinematographers talked about it in detail in some place. I, I can't wait to read about it. Yeah. I put pause I, on it myself. Cause I was, yeah, just like, like Philip said, I thought, I thought there was a mistake that I, I was, I, I'm, I'm watching it on my MacBook pro sitting here and um, yeah, immediately I thought that's odd and nope, that's, I what I mean does it, do we know why uh, the director made that choice? I, I'm not sure it enhanced the the experience for me. It was it was something I noticed, but I don't know if it made the film better. The only thing that I could figure out is what Danny already alluded to was the idea of extreme claustrophobia mm. uh, that that continues to descend us more and more down into the path of there's no getting off this island. They're stranded. There's help isn't coming. The madness is ensuing. It would be interesting, wouldn't it, to watch the film in normal aspect ratio, watch it in the way it actually was filmed and see if there was any noticeable difference, just even physically as you watch the film. And actually, I don't believe they did too much post-processing to square this image off. I think it was literally filmed at that aspect ratio. Mm. They they used cameras from the 20s and the 30s that, you know, that shot. The thing about primitive, the early cameras, is there was no standard aspect ratio. They were all varieties of basically, you know, square to not quite as square. So if you watch a lot of silent movies, they're just all slightly different. It wasn't until much later that we standardized that four by three. So I think it was actually shot pretty close to the to the projected aspect ratio. So it was very purposeful. Well, it's interesting you say that, Danny, because uh, just a few weeks ago, I watched Alfred Hitchcock's The Lodger, which is a silent film from 1927. And the first five minutes of the lighthouse, I was thinking about the lodger. It had such a, a similar feel and being so close in, you're really near the characters because the, the shot itself, it demands that kind of a shot based on the aspect ratio. So I, I was hard. It took me back to those silent film era, which is really interesting. You said that. Yeah. I think that was intentional. Yeah. Now, does it, in the end, would it have benefited from a, a more traditional, you know, filming a projection, I don't, I don't know. It's kind of hard to even think uh, to imagine it. Um, most of the, the shots were, uh, were, um, Lord, were closed. There, there would be some objects in the, in the, on the edges, which would have given you that claustrophobia, even if it was a, a wider screen. So it may not have had very much effect, but it did have the effect of any outdoor scene that would have been an open frame is suddenly this tight still they're claustrophobic even when they're under the sky which is really interesting mm -hmm. yeah so um what are some themes here that we see in the film that we can talk about and flesh out a little bit uh, i think one clear one to get you guys thought on this is what we find out about ephraim is that he very clearly is running from his past uh he experiences this encounter with his former co-worker something happened there was an accident his co-worker dies he doesn't really try to help him and uh, he it looks like he's trying to start over 
you know, get away. And there's on this remote island. The further you get away, the more money you make. And he's like, that's great for me. And so he goes to this island. And unfortunately, alcohol begins to be brought into the picture, which is, I think, another theme we can talk about. But um, we don't find out about his past until three quarters of the way into the film. Uh, So, you know, how effective of a storyline was that? Was the speech where he confesses uh, what he had done, did you find that to be compelling? Uh, did it did it make the, the story more cohesive? Or was it a plot point that you could just give or take? It didn't really add much. What do you think? I mean, it was a plot point. The, 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 this movie had very little of those. So, so and suddenly there is a story there, which was, mm-hmm. which was great. Because up until this point, it really had just been, again, a character study. It had just been scenes where we were sort of voyeuristically looking into these characters' lives. So it was nice that there was a background, and I, and I appreciate it. I also appreciated that, you know, you talked about the alcohol and alcoholism is definitely a theme here. Right. And, and he, this is one of those utterances under the influence, right? So, uh, it was nice that, you know, I don't think he would have, he would have done this. He would have told us this story or told, uh, wake this story if he hadn't been, been drunk. Uh, and I, I actually, one of the things that engaged me, this was that was the alcohol aspect was the, of the story again there's so it's a limited amount of things for you to grasp in this movie it's a very thin plot so i do think that was a beneficial plot line great what do you yeah. think Scott? yeah well i think yeah that it was it was very interesting um he confesses that he stole the identity of someone and his actual name is the same name as uh Willem Dafoe's character. So, you right. know, I, so it made me think of identity. There, there's a lot of confusion about in, in this movie about who am I and which one of us said what. I mean, there's, there's several points in their, in their bickering and their arguing where they disagree on the timeline, time frame. How long has it been since we, you know, last talked yeah. about this? Has it been a day? No, it's been weeks. And then, you know, I, you were chasing me with an axe. No, you were chasing me with an axe. I mean, there's there's confusion of identity all over the place. And that was, t- to me, this sort of fit into that. Let's talk about that scene for just a second, because I'm interested to get your guys' take. With the time issue that you just mentioned, we are as confused as they are. So we don't know how much time has passed, right? It, was it four weeks or was it seven weeks or have they been there seven months? We're as clueless as they are. So we're not really... We're not really one who's in on that conversation. We don't have any greater insight than they do. But we do with the axe. We physically saw Wake chasing Ephraim with the axe. But by the time they get back to the house, you almost become convinced that it wasn't Wake (laughs) because he so convincingly says, you are chasing me. What were you doing? What did you make of that? You know, was... Did the director trick us or did we see what we re- what really happened and he's just trying to turn things around because he's confused? Um, how did you guys interpret that scene? I believe I see. Wake, Wake, I'm sorry, I believe Wake was gaslighting uh, uh, Ephraim, Thomas, whoever he is, uh, I think. But you're exactly right that there is such a chaos to the film that maybe you know you know maybe we're an unreliable viewer it's not just an unreliable narrator 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how I that's how I interpreted it. That um, that you know, there's some. You know, are we mad? Is is this all a hallucination? Because it, it's very difficult to know what they're really seeing, and what they're what what's going on in their head. Um, Robert Pattinson, the the guy who plays um, Ephraim or Thomas. There's a there's several times in the movie where I can't tell if he's seeing something or if he's hallucinating this, and I I just think there's just a swirl there. And this, so when when uh, when Willem Dafoe said no, you were chasing me, it didn't occur to me that he might be gaslighting him. I thought maybe, you know, maybe I'm interpreting the whole thing wrong too. It, That's what I thought. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, that I that I'm as confused as they are. Like everybody in this whole film, including the viewer, we're just all confused. <laughs> Nobody really knows what's going on. Uh, but having hearing Danny said that, I, I can certainly see how that's it's just manipulation, uh, yeah. psychological of some kind. But uh, but you know, there was several times in the film where uh, Eggers kind of did a, a a fade to white, kind of like a wash, and. You know, especially in Italian horror, that can so often be used as, uh, like, fading to black is one thing, uh, death. Fading to white elicits other emotions. Uh, is this is this a dreamlike state? Is this an angelic? Is this a, you know, is this an afterlife kind of thing? I don't think that's happening in this movie. But I, I just noticed that sometimes we would go to white and I, every time that happened, I'm like, Oh man, you know, is this going to be one of those lame endings where it's all a, he didn't do that thankfully. And, and I'm not suggesting that the whole thing was some kind of mind manipulation or a dream sequence or something like that. But, but he gives us just enough, doesn't he, to make us concerned that that might be what's happening. Oh yeah. yeah. We could have had a r- real twisty ending. Certainly. Oh yeah, and you know, and again with the with the um, you know we've talked about the role that alcohol plays in this movie. That can really change your perception too. And at first, um, Ephraim doesn't doesn't drink. You know, he's abstaining. But as the loneliness sets in, and as uh, the pressure that um, Willem Dafoe puts on, he, he eventually does take in drink. And they're drinking. It looked what you know wasn't there a scene where they were like drinking the oil or something or the fuel it was turpentine it was yeah. honey and turpentine yeah yeah i mean i was thinking kerosene is that yeah. what turpentine is kerosene yeah that's gonna totally mess up your mind it has to so so yeah there's inebriation there's hallucination there's blurring of the lines between reality and and some other kind of vision so yeah i I mean, I didn't notice the. Well, fade and that white. would wouldn't that elicit more like a trip? That that wouldn't just make you drunk. That would make you like trippy, wouldn't it? That I, kind of stuff. I don't know. I think because well, <laughs> what is the deal with the sea? Let's just say you know what's the deal with the sea creatures, the mermaids. There's a lot of mythology in this film, right? Like, where in the world does that come from? I, I everything we've said up to this point is is two guys together, difficult past. Alcohol plays into this. You know, I think everybody could be tracking with this. Like, gosh, it's kind of a dark movie. There's definitely horror elements. There's some psychological issues going on. And then all of a sudden we say, oh, yeah, by the way, there's mermaids and uh, there's sea creatures with tentacles. And there's, you know, curses being thrown on people and gods being mentioned. And, you know, we just thought we'd throw that in there for you as well. (laughs) So, like... Wasn't that kind of 
bizarre. But I guess I guess that goes with the whole sea mythology, right? That these creatures are a part of the legend of the sea. And clearly that's huge for Wake. I mean, the guy basically wanted to be a pirate, it seems like, you know, the way he was talking. And uh, and, and doesn't at some point Ephraim even call him out on that? Like, why are you even oh, talking yeah. like this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He even talks, you know, your Captain Ahab sort of way of talking and, you know, referring to Melville's Moby Dick. And, um, you know, yeah. and, the, and the, the mermaid was, I don't know that much about the legends of, or myths of mermaids, but she was also a siren, right? From like Homer. Uh, she, when she opened her mouth, it was like this, um, you know, sharp, oh, piercing yeah. sound. I mean, in Homer, the siren song is it actually draws you. And this had the opposite right. effect, but I don't know. I, yeah, yeah, it was I, like a banshee. There you go. There you go. Yeah, it was. There's obviously a ton of Greek mythological references. It's, I mean, you could easily read Wake as Poseidon, and uh, and with that ending, you could read uh, Ephraim as you know, Prometheus, right? He's laying there on the beach with his liver being eaten out by birds. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, that has to get you thinking about you know. We, you know, Prometheus stole fire for man, right? He was, so is this a film about, you know, man seeking to overthrow the gods or, you know, he gets to the top of the lighthouse and he, you know, looks in and sees something, whatever he sees. Uh, uh, I, the film is just built, I feel like, to be read symbolically. Like, I, I'm not sure if the plot means anything. It's all these symbolic elements that you can just watch and run with, which makes it probably a film that's interesting to talk about, maybe more interesting to talk about than it was to watch. Yeah. I I think there's some truth to that. Yeah, I do too. And what what was missing for me was, and and maybe this is just a weakness in me, but I I couldn't get the point of view, you know, well, we're, what were we supposed to take away from this? It, it, it's certainly not just sort of an entertaining experience. Traditionally, it was beautiful. I mean, it was a it was a feast for the eyes, and in a way, it was experiential. And I get that, but I don't know. I guess I just gravitate more toward, like many people, toward things with a stronger story. And um, I just couldn't quite figure out what. You know. That's why I said in. A moment ago that it kind of reminded me of watching a david lynch movie where you know there's all these sorts of symbols and you know that's there and it makes it interesting to talk about but i'm left thinking what happened what was that <laughs> what did i just what did i just do well you know you mentioned david lynch it's hard not to think of a racer head right and some of these other movies where you're those those descent into madness movies you know and, and even something like um, you, who said they were listening to Shakespeare? Did you? While I was waiting on you guys, I was listening. Patrick Stewart is reading a sonnet a day. So oh, okay. I well, I mean, even something like Macbeth, right? Uh, I mean, just some of these things that we we think of when we think of people losing it. The Shining, you know, the the, the motel descent into madness. I just kept thinking about that as Ephraim just kept losing his mind, you know. Um, so I thought of those images as well. I believe maybe both of them are losing their mind, right? Or Wake already has. I, I think know. Wake is just gone. The, yeah. I, I I took it as he was just kind of 
basically drunk the whole time and then finally Ephraim catches up with him and when Ephraim catches up with him not good things start happening then you know because at, at, at first he was able to kind of keep his distance a little bit you know from from wake he would he recognized that he was just bossy cranky crazy guy he would just kind of say aye sir and go do his thing quietly but really once alcohol came into the picture man it was it was downhill fast from there yeah that was that was kind of my it was trippy so so did um did willem defoe wake did we learn that he had killed his previous second his previous assistant is that is that what at least he was accused of by thomas howard as phil said we see things right we saw that head come in in the lobster shrimp. Oh, yeah yeah right, right, uh, that was you know that uh Ephraim was saying was the head of the, the previous assistant, uh, but who knows, right? Who knows mm-hmm. what was in, uh, what was just these fantasies of this man that was descending into madness, which is why it feels Lovecraftian, right? There's yes. not just tentacles and darkness. There's also just the a narrator who is well, he's not a narrator, obviously, but a protagonist who is on a very quick decline. Yeah. Um, so another another. let's think about just the connecting point here with Robert Eckers this is his second feature film mm-hmm. let's just think about similarities and differences with The Witch I don't know if you guys remember The Witch uh, it's been a long time since we've talked about that um, but first of all which film did you enjoy more The Witch or The Lighthouse it sounds like I think we all enjoyed The Witch quite a bit, if I remember correctly, didn't we? Weren't we all enjoying that film? I don't I think remember. so. Yeah. yeah. The Witch was one of my favorite films of that year, for, okay. for certain. And, and it shares with, um, you know, it shares this technical brilliance. That film was, again, beautiful cinematography, just, and, you know, the bravery of making another, making a black and white film. Uh, but that film was so beautifully lit and, just you know just fine-tuned for you know for the eye and this film is you know dark and kind of shadowy and kind of intentionally ugly um so i mean i don't think aesthetically it's as good an experience and then i think the the witch plotline was much more interesting and you guys had a wonderful theological discussion about what was going on there that i just sat back and listened to mostly but i don't think I don't think anything happening in this movie is is intriguing to me as stuff that happened in The Witch. Though I'm, as we said last week about Ari Aster, I'm ready to watch anything this guy makes. There, regardless of the fact that I didn't love this film, I'm in for the next one. Same here. I, I feel exactly the same way. He's definitely become someone that I want to pay attention to. Uh, I I do want to mention Worldview in just a minute. I, I think. At least I want to talk about worldview in every film we watch. But as I was taking some notes and I, I typed out worldview and faith, I put a colon, and then it just kind of set there blank. <laughs> like I, there, there's not a whole lot to draw from, and that, it takes a lot for me not to find something faith-based in a movie. Uh, I think there's a couple things I've come up with. I'll mention in a moment. But you're absolutely right. I mean, it's in that way, it's very, very different from The Witch, in my opinion. But it's similar in that it's definitely a period piece. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no doubt about that. It's similar in that the speech is very specific to the context of the film. Remember in The Witch, it took you half the movie to even understand what these people are saying. Mm -hmm. 
and maybe not so much for the lighthouse that you can't understand it, but it's as we already mentioned, there's a definite dialect and a speech pattern taking place here. And the, the movie is just incredibly well researched. Uh, so it seems like those are some themes that maybe we already see uh, Robert Eggers. In, these are the ways he enjoys making, making films. Incredibly well researched, making sure he's getting things meticulous and right about the period, about the speech, about the dress and so forth. Which is nice to see in a horror film that people are are taking it seriously. Sometimes horror films you know, are just seen as junk movies and i think he's showing us that that's definitely not the case you can think through these things well what do you think scott yeah i'm 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 with you so i really like the witch for a lot of reasons there are some similarities i mean he he, like you said he he's he's doing a period piece he's doing it very authentically he's paying close close attention to details and having the right kind of clothing the right kind of um, you know the the building that they're in, the tools they use. It, it's very authentic to the times. It doesn't look like it's being shot on a Hollywood backlot with um, you know props made out of styrofoam and, and the rubber rubber suit on the monster and all that. So it, that's kind of cool. I, I like that, and and I really do appreciate the historical element to it. That is kind of interesting to me. I like history. The witch was definitely more dealing with um, uh, religion. Uh, of course, this one has mythology. It has that sort of bigger than nature, supernature going on. Uh, so those things are kind of similar too. But the witch had just a more coherent plot. It, it did have confusion. It did have moments of what am I seeing and what happened and and symbolism. There were. Uh, there were moments where they had omens and demon possession and all that kind of stuff, but it was a more linear uh, storyline. And for me, that that was just more enjoyable for that reason. I think artistically, they both are, you know, they score probably a 10 out of 10. But um, yeah, I want to see what he's going to do next. I don't know if he's, if he's, is he just a horror director or is he going to, you know, surprises with something completely different. I, I actually, his next movie, uh, I looked that up today because I was wondering also, is a uh, historical film about the Vikings. And it stars uh, Anya Taylor-Joy from uh, The Witch. So, And it has a knockout cast. So it, I, I think it's going to be like a big budget uh, kind of thing. So uh, to see him turn his kind of historical and you know, authentic eye to that story will probably be pretty good. But I don't believe it'll be a horror film. Well, that's what I was going to ask. You know, what's the genre? Is it just straight ahead kind of fiction? or There's almost no information about it hmm. other than wow. it's being made. That makes sense. You know, that would be <laughs> – we we have late 19th century pirate stuff. We've got pre-colonial witches, and now we have Vikings. So, yeah. yeah. Well, he likes the historical stuff. That's that's great. I expect a high-quality picture. I expect him to have a great attention to accuracy and detail. And I expect there to be knockout performances, whoever the cast is. Because when with The Witch, yeah, I, you know, I've kind of paid... I noticed these characters, uh, or these actors. Anya Taylor-Joy is one. She was sort of the protagonist of that. I've seen her in a couple things since then. But um, so with The Witch, at least for me, the actors were all unknown originally for me. I mean, I kind of recognized a couple of the of them because I think they'd been in Game of Thrones or something. But they 
they were mostly unknowns. With these two guys, they're extremely well-known celebrities. So it, it'll be interesting. And, and But in all cases, the acting was just over-the-top excellent. Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, there's an art to getting performances out of actors. Uh, and, you know, there's only two films to, to look at, but uh, it, it's a good sign because the performances universally good and of course there's only basically two actors in this film so and one of them is good in everything he's ever in uh but i was kind of surprised by pattinson's performance i mm -hmm. i haven't really seen him in much that i thought he was particularly good in uh and it's really really good uh, and I, I did a little bit of reading about it because i'm interested in that stuff and plus you know i could teach it in class if it's interesting and uh he works very differently than defoe Defoe likes to rehearse everything 300 times and Pattinson would rather get it right on the first take and it be emotional and straight from his heart and not. So to be able to take two, it's just two actors, two people in a room that work completely differently and get it to come out that good. It's probably a sign the guy can direct actors. Wow. That's yeah. really interesting. I wonder if that created problems for them. Yeah. They, they did say there was some tension on the set. Like which is perfect that's exactly what eggers wants right i mean exactly it worked out great that could have really played into the whole thing well a couple more things i want to i want to talk about let's talk about the audio of the film so the very first thing that i noticed is this foghorn going off every 10 seconds right yeah you mentioned Eraserhead, right that's very lynchian this annoying yes, just an inescapable sound that's always right in the background, right in the back of your mind. And yeah, that, that, that I, I did not think Lynch at all, but after you mentioned this, I was thinking, Oh yeah, that's a racer head. Absolutely. Yeah. At first and it, it, it just follows the theme of the movie. It's almost like, you know, a Chinese water torture or everything. When you first hear it, it's, it's almost kind of a cool sound. It, it, you know, it's got this kind of deep resonating sound. It's, it's neat. We're at a lighthouse. But it it's kind of always there throughout the film, and as the characters continue to descend into madness, that that horn just continues to systematically just keep keep going. And then it seems like the soundtrack to the film, the ocean waves, the uh, just the the bigness of the surroundings of the ocean, also seem to have that same kind of vibrancy as that foghorn. So you're getting it kind of from all angles, which just led to the confusion. Um, what do you think, those, Scott? Did that pick up on that? Or Danny, yeah. please. Yeah, go ahead. No, it's fine, Scott. So, so yeah, I mean, yeah, I was thinking, I, I guess, you know, for me, it was Lynchian in some ways, but, um, and the racer head thing did come to mind because, but with the racer head, the noise, I mean, it was very discordant. It was, it was irritating and it felt like you were being attacked. I felt like the movie was attacking me when I watched mm -hmm. the racer head. Um, I felt assaulted by the soundtrack. With um, with this one, it was it, it it was a it was a defining sound for the movie, but it it didn't feel hostile. It, it felt kind of warm. I don't know, uh, but yeah, it was. I thought the whole sound design and all the the soundtrack, everything was was really really good. You got all the gulls, you got the water. It was it was like being there. I I think it would have been cool to see this in one of those 4D theaters where they have. Uh, water splashing you now and clouds and lightning and all those things that they're doing at least here in Irvine they got theaters that do that for yeah. 4d right yeah That's what I have really I really do uh, regret not seeing this in the theater because I, I really would like to see how how that aspect ratio played out and uh, what kind of experience that imparted 
uh, I, I went and saw the Traveling Roadshow of Hateful Eight when it was on, you know, they're broadcasting at 70 millimeter, mm-hmm. and I expected to be just blown away, but, you know, it's a wider screen. <laughs> it's a slightly mm-hmm. wider screen. It didn't feel that different than normal widescreen, but I think this would have been a really good theater experience. I'm a little regretful that, that I did watch it part of it in a the theater here at the college, but it's not quite a widescreen theater. But uh, yeah. I, th- I think, uh, yeah, I, th- I, I need to see the rest of his movies on the big screen as they happen. That was a uh, an artifact of living in the middle of nowhere and not having screens near me that I could get to. Well, and that's a good question. Are these films are these films enjoying a full release, or are they limited release, or do you have to be in big cities? Because I, I don't remember the lighthouse being. In the theaters, I got a, it, it. Got a really, really small rollout. Uh, it did really well on you know New York, Chicago, uh, LA screens. Got a, a, a little bit bigger regional rollout, but that was it. I think it ended up making like eighteen million at the box office, uh, uh, which was on a really small budget. So I, I think he's, his movies make money enough that he gets to keep making movies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and again, they've handed him apparently this large budget picture, but uh, it's an art house film. Uh, he, he makes. You know, relatively small, cheap movies that don't really look like they're small, cheap movies. Well, let's just hope that that goes well for him. You know, we've seen some legendary directors who did legendary things, and once they were giving a major studio budget, it went right in the tank fast. Uh, hopefully, that's not going to be the case for him. He seems Dude, to be... Have we talked about David Lynch this episode? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. My, but, but, my boy, get... John Carpenter. Uh, Let, let's hand the guy who did a racer had sixty million dollars and let him make Dune. That's just—I yeah. don't know. I don't yeah. know who who did that. Uh, let's see. One aspect of the film we need to talk about is the sexual undertones. There is definitely an erotic nature to this film. We could even say homoerotic. Um, we've got imagery like uh, the lighthouse itself in one scene was used. You know, a, a rotating of the lighthouse. Uh, the, the camera rotates the lighthouse during a a sexual scene. Um, you know, there are definitely lots of symbolism here. Um, the relationship between Wake and Ephraim. You know, was there was there a are we to, are we to walk away thinking that these gentlemen were homosexuals? That that they may be like uh, being in prison. You you just become attracted to whatever human being is nearest to you. Uh, what was Eggers trying to do here from the sexual side of things? I, I kind of came up with a blank on this. It's obviously there. I'm just not sure what we were to think. Um, yeah. So it, what, it do, felt what, do, to what are your like, ideas? It felt to me more like it's, this film had a very sort of kitchen sink feel to it. And, um, and sort of the, the homoeroticism was there, but it didn't seem to really, drive the plot maybe it did i mean maybe i'm not it just wasn't jumping out at me um i think we mentioned before recording that there's obviously some bdsm elements to him walking him like a dog at the end and uh, there's the near kiss that you know happens when you know they're drunk and dancing and they both raise their head and they almost kiss and then they just pull back and start you know, boxing, start fighting each other. Yeah. It's, it's a very, you know, it's really hits you over the head with the ideal sort of a toxic masculine things. Uh, uh, but again, I just don't know if it, I don't, I don't know if it was a big enough part. I don't know if it went all the way 
if if that was what he was trying to do i don't think it did uh, and if it wasn't what it, he was trying to do i don't know that it added much to the movie it was another thing that it was in the movie that was like oh it's there but i don't know this is kind of a movie where the the sum isn't greater than its parts it's got a mm. bunch of interesting parts but i just don't feel like they gel and for me and the homoeroticism was part of that yeah so yeah no it's um it's there so i mean it's clearly there this isn't just a very subtle sort of thing it's it's there's clearly some kind of uh uh, homoerotic thing going on um there are other sexualized scenes where um robert pattinson's character is yes he's seduced by this mermaid he he has desire for her body um he uh, pleasures himself to uh, the uh, was it scrimshaw is that what they call that when you cut something you just you carve something yes. out of bone or or um, ivory so he's got an ivory version of a of a mermaid and he's he's fantasizing about that sexually and so there there's plenty of that and I think I think that it just seems to go with the sense of isolation we're, we're cut off from all other humans yeah if you're in prison you 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 might get sexual satisfaction from other bodies than you normally would so i think that's it just it just uh goes along with the with the loneliness and the complete isolation that's there that's kind of how i read that yeah i think that's helpful and probably the right way to take it um in some in some ways, the film is trying to show us two very masculine people, or at least that's what they're trying to, you know, right at the beginning of the movie, we have the very first thing that Ephraim is introduced with Wake is that the guy has an incredible habit of passing gas. <laughs> it's like, you can't get more masculine than that, right? And then, of course, they're smoking, they're drinking, they're, they're, they're threatening each other, they're fighting each other. You have all of these incredibly, quote-unquote, masculine things, as, as we define masculinity. But then, yeah, underneath all of that, here are these homoerotic uh, ideas that are being present. So, I, yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think that's probably what's going on here. Well, what about faith and worldview? At one point early in the film, um, Wake asks uh, uh, Ephraim about his faith, and Ephraim basically just says, "I'm a uh, I'm a God fearer." If that's what you mean, mm-hmm. and that's really it. That's about the only time that. Um, God, in the sense of the God of the Bible, shows up in the movie. Uh, we don't see any sense of kind of a, a prayer or a religious devotion or any reaching out to a higher power in order to help bring peace or to rescue or to help through this situation. He's a God-fearer, and we'll just leave it at that, which, which was interesting to even include that uh, into the film. But from a worldview perspective, it's interesting. We're in the middle of this COVID-19 crisis, uh, self-isolation, quarantine. And just a moment ago, Scott, you had mentioned the fact that they are isolated, that they're not around other human beings. And so all they've got is each other, and that's creating uh, some issues with them. Uh, Psychologically, physically, they're having to work through those things. What does this mean now? Uh, My rescue did not show up. I didn't leave when I thought I was going to leave. So now I've got to figure out what that means for me on this island. That's something that I think we're dealing with right now. 
is the rescue going to show up in the terms of in two weeks at the beginning of May, are we going to be able to return back to business as normal? Are we going to go to uh, Arby's and get a roast beef? Are we going to be able to go to church? That's what we're hoping out for. But what if that ferry doesn't come? What if that ship doesn't arrive? How long can we continue to maintain the kind of lifestyle that we're living right now without a certain kind of descent? And what is it that's going to prevent us from uh, descending in that way? Those are the questions that I think we as humans have to be asking and ask what kind of foundation do we have to prevent that from happening? Uh, In this movie, the foundation was alcohol. I'll turn to alcohol. That didn't work too well for them, and I don't think it will work too well for us. Uh, So there's got to be something else uh, that is there. So that's in some ways grasping at straws, but that's kind of how I I put my mind around what's happening with current events based on uh, the lighthouse. Either you guys have any piggyback on that at all? I'll I'll go for it. Um, Yes, there there was one moment when they were talking and Wake asks him, are are you a praying man? And uh, Ephraim says, I'm a God, I'm God fearing, if that's what you mean. I thought there was going to be more uh, with that. I thought that conversation was going to go somewhere and it really didn't. But, um, you know, a type of religion does kind of seep into the picture again when... Mm -hmm. um, when Wake, Willem Dafoe's character, curses um, uh, Robert Pattinson, you know he's calling on uh, not Neptune, but I, I forget who he who he which, which god of the sea that he called upon. The, it's sort of a pagan thing. There's a lot of paganism in this, and it's interesting. I mean, I you know I, I like the mythology and I like the the tie-in to the 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 power of the ocean. And, and those kinds of things, but it was a bleak movie. It, it, as far as worldview goes, I, I don't think it offered any straw to grasp on, uh, grasp onto. It just seemed like a, a hopeless movie for me. Yeah, an example of what not to do. Yeah, <laughs> not a but not a model. Yeah, it, it had the um, the cosmic horror thing of you know if 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 there are gods they. You know, humans are insignificant and you know that any interaction we have with them they would you know treat us as if we were uh, insects you know I, I don't think it had any you know any closer relationship to the spiritual world than that which is very lovecraftian so mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. i'll take it yeah uh, this feels like the most love the 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 most lovecraftian movie i've seen that wasn't absolutely you know based on a lovecraft piece uh, and, and I guess, the, I guess the question we also just have to ask: the movie is called The Lighthouse. The very final scene, he finally makes it up to the light. When he arrives, it's as if the light comes alive. Uh, the 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 door to the light opens for him, and he walks up and he looks inside. And now we have the point of view from inside the lighthouse. We can't see what he sees. Uh, but he sees something that is captivating, mesmerizing. He reaches his hand in uh, what starts out as a, uh, seems like a very positive experience for him. He's finally getting to uh, see with his own eyes and experience what this is about. Turns into um, what appears to be pain. He's screaming out, which causes him to fall backwards and ultimately uh, die. You know, as I'm 
as I'm watching it, of course, the question I'm wondering is, what does he see? What is it that he's experiencing? What vision is he having right now inside this lighthouse? And then I thought, <laughs> I couldn't help but to think about Pulp Fiction. What's inside the briefcase that's shiny and orange uh, that nobody actually gets to see and does even matter? And then I thought, maybe it's nothing. What if it's just like this hot, bright light? And he sticks his hand and he burns himself and he falls, you know, or something like that. So, you know, any any major insights on what you guys think he, he saw when he came up to the lighthouse? I don't even think Robert Eggers knows. Uh, you know, it's just who knows what it is. All, all what we know think? for sure is whatever he sees, Wake sees, and Wake is protective of it. You know, Wake keeps it lit. He, it, the light is his duty. Yeah. Right? And he doesn't let the patents a character up there at all so there's maybe something wonderful behind that lot uh, that wake wants for himself but but again we'll clearly not know well there is a scene where wake refers to the lighthouse or the light as his as his, like his wife yes that, that that is more gratifying to him than any woman that he that he's known and he, he is seen by robert pattinson uh, Willem Dafoe is up in the light. He's, I think he was naked. He's up against the glass. The light is tw turning around. He's having kind of an orgasmic experience with the light. Um, so it's, again, there's sort of a goddess thing or a, a little bit of a sex mystical dynamic going on there. I think that was, it's not, it's not clear in a, you know, I can't put my finger on it exactly what that was, but it was something beyond something big and wasn't the first time we see tentacles they were sliding across the floor do i remember that they were sliding across mm -hmm. the floor and pattinson's underneath and he he looks up and in, into the chamber where the light actually is and he sees these tentacles go by so it's a it's a it's a place where um the real world opens up to another dimension or something hmm which is very Lovecraftian. Yeah. And also looking into and getting a glimpse of what is real what, you know, drives you crazy. Mm. And, and Wake is crazy, I believe. Well, and I think he was actually even married, right? Did he? Yeah. He, got, he was 13 years at sea and he was willing to divorce his wife because of it the left wife. his kids at home, yeah. 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 So. Well, The Lighthouse by Robert Eggers. Uh, do we recommend the film? We don't really know. <laughs> uh, we like parts of it. Beautiful. Uh, in, in, incredible direction by Robert Eggers. But I think Danny said it best. You know, there's there's some really amazing parts here, but the sum of them maybe doesn't equal what we wish it would. And uh, that's that's a good way to think about it. Any final thoughts, guys, about the film before we close out? I think if you're a film buff, if you really appreciate the artistry of it and you um, can, you're patient with a, 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 a picture that isn't strong on narrative, that doesn't have a strong plot line and is more of an experience, then I think you might really kind of dig this. But otherwise, I could see this not being a crowd pleaser. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's us, uh, The Blackest Eyes, here with The Lighthouse. Thanks a lot for listening. Again, please leave us a comment with any feedback that you have about the podcast or about the film. Uh, we would love to hear from you. And on behalf of Scott and Danny, we just say thanks. Keep watching those movies. And we'll see you next week with Body Count, the podcast for TheBlackestEyes.com.
See you later.